Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Tiffany Parks. If you're like me, when you travel, you love to immerse yourself in the history of the place you're visiting. Not necessarily the entirety of that history, maybe just one little nugget that you find particularly fascinating. It could be an era, a war, a historical figure, a ruler, and really go deep in that particular aspect of history. This is especially a good idea in a city like Rome, where the history, if you were to try to cover all of it, would be absolutely overwhelming. I know that people are coming back to Rome, slowly but surely, tourists from around the world, but particularly Europe and North America, are starting to trickle back in. And if you'd like a starting point, a fascinating historical nugget from which to dive into your sightseeing, I suggest the Borgias, a notorious family who lived in Rome during the Renaissance. You may know some things about this family, or you may think you know. But today, we'll be listening back on an episode in which I tell you the true story of the Borgias, and perhaps more importantly, where you can go in Rome to find the places where this family lived, worked, and committed the dastardly deeds that made them so famous. So where should we begin? Well, the Borgias are a fascinating family, and I think anybody who's ever come across the Borgias, enough to learn something about them, can't help but be fascinated by them, because... Well, first of all, a little bit of background for those of you who may not know about the Borgias. So they were actually a Spanish family. One of the members of the family back in the 1400s became Pope. His name was Pope Callistus III. He's not that well remembered. But as soon as he became Pope, he named his nephew as a cardinal, which is very common. They all did this. So it's not like it's, oh, nepotism. Nepotism is actually, the word comes from this because you would give these plum jobs to your nephews. That's where the word comes from. So this was 1455. And Rodrigo Borgia, the star of the family, he's the patriarch of the family. He becomes a cardinal in 1455 when his uncle becomes Pope. He is famous for his basically lascivious lifestyle and some would even go as far as to say evil personality he was actually known as the papa cattivo which means eh, you can translate it It could be the naughty pope but it could also be the evil pope <laughs> so <laughs> depends on how you uh, you want to translate cattivo how do you think but, he thought about um, himself naughty well, he was a murderer, supposedly, so I'm going to go with evil. Maybe evil, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I still love the Borgias. I think once when a certain amount of time passes, you can forgive people of the atrocities that they committed. I think like maybe 500 years is a good rule of thumb. It could be okay to be like, oh, I love that mass murderer. <laughs> it's such a good story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a mass murderer, but he did definitely kill some people. But so he had a lot of mistresses, but... The most famous was Vanozza Catanei, with whom he had four children, most famously Cesare and Lucrezia Borgia. He also had other children from other relationships. They did that back then. It wasn't really common for priests who were high up in the church to keep their vows of chastity. It was kind of considered normal that they would have relationships. Also, you have to consider that these cardinals and other very high-ranking priests were considered kind of like nobility, because in Rome there was no nobility, there was no king or queen of Rome or the papal states, all the sort of the central part of Italy that was ruled by the pope, and so anyone in the high in the church, they were the most important people in society. 
And they were in fact called the princes of the church. That was an expression that they used for cardinals was the prince of the church. So that kind of makes it a little more believable why they would have these open mistresses and stuff. He becomes Pope eventually in 1492. And the way that he became Pope is also very, very scandalous. He apparently bribed the other cardinals to vote for him. Mm. Bribes possibly blackmailed some of them as well. He was not a well-liked person. He had a lot of enemies. He was very, very clever. He was very smart and shrewd. But he was also a jerk. So, you know, he wasn't the type of person that, that the other cardinals would have automatically just said, oh, I'm going to vote for Rodrigo Borgia because I think he'd be a great pope. But again, back then, it's important to remember that there were very clear factions amongst the cardinals, the College of Cardinals. During the Renaissance, the most common fact, two factions really were the, the French faction and the Spanish faction. Mm. Without getting into too much weeds of history, the French and the Spanish were constantly fighting for control over Italy or parts of Italy because Italy was not a sovereign country at that time. Hmm. Uh, and so the cardinals who were pro-French and there were the cardinals who were pro-Spanish and they were always kind of warring it out between them to see who would, uh, would go on to become Pope and who could get the most votes. Mm-hmm. So anyways, moving on from the boring part, he becomes Pope in 1492 And he immediately does what his uncle had done. He names his son, though. In this case, it's his son, Cesare. He names him a cardinal. And I think what makes the story so fascinating is sort of the relationships between the children and the Pope and his longtime mistress, Vanozza, and then his new mistress that he gets when he becomes a Pope who's a teenager and about, you know, the age of his kids, more or less. And then they have a daughter and just the scandals that swirled around them. The biggest scandal was that Lucrezia was involved in an incestuous relationship with either her father or her brother or both. These rumors swirled quite a bit. Historians will say there's no basis in fact for this. And the reason that there were rumors of this was simply because they were so hated And one of the main reasons they were hated was simply because they were Spanish. Mm. They were seen as outsiders. But they were also hated because they did lots of bad things. So, you know, I guess that's fair. But Lucrezia was very beautiful by all accounts. She had long blonde hair. She was very delicate. She was very graceful. And who knows? Nobody knows what happened. But I think it makes the story more interesting Yes, to think about a little incest going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more yeah. scandalous for sure. Because, I mean, when it comes to sex, really, there are very few things that are off limits, even today. Mm-hmm. But that's still something that's off limits, you know. So it's like, wow, if it's shocking today to us, yeah. think about how shocking it would have been back then. Yeah, when you can see how they might also use it to demonize them. Oh, yeah. It reminds me very much of, not that it was necessarily incest, but it reminds me of some of the rumors from the Salem witch trials or something like that. She eats children or whatever. You know, <laughs> It definitely has some of those, you know, she sleeps regularly with her father. Definitely seems like something that could be thrown in to make her look all the worse. Yes. And probably the person who probably started the rumor was her first husband. She got married at 13, by the way. She was married off for political purposes, and then her husband apparently was no longer convenient after a year or so. Her father wanted to, you know, he only had one daughter. Now, he did have at least one other daughter, I should say, but he only legitimized those four. He had them legitimized by having, he got someone to marry their mom, 
so that he could have them legitimized. So she was really his most important daughter, and he wanted to use her as they'd used their daughters back in those days to make alliances. And so that first alliance with Giovanni Sforza did not really work out the way that he wanted it to. And so he, you know, he decided that he would find someone else for her. Well, in the meantime, she goes off to a convent. She regularly did this. She would go to a convent in Rome, San Sisto, which is near the Baths of Caracalla, still there. And she would sort of hide out for a little while. She did this throughout her life. But either while she was in the convent or shortly thereafter, she did get pregnant by a servant or something like that. Mm. But she wasn't divorced yet. Not divorced, annulled. Of course, there's no divorce in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So when it was time to have her marriage annulled because they wanted to marry her off to someone else, the reason that they gave for it was that her husband was impotent. Right. (laughs) And that they had never consummated their marriage. And she testified to this at like six months pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, she was probably like hidden behind some kind of a screen or something to protect her modesty. (laughs) But he was utterly humiliated because he refused to have sex in front of the people who were judging him. I don't know. I don't want to say jury because it certainly wasn't a jury. It was other cardinals. (laughs) They brought in a prostitute and he was supposed to, you know, show that he was actually virile and he refused to do it. So he was branded impotent, which of course was terrible for his reputation. Not only did he lose his wife, he had this laughingstock thing happen to him. So it's very possible that he invented this rumor on purpose out of revenge. And apparently he said, you know, the reason her father forced us to have a marriage in old is because he wants her for himself. There was also a great rivalry between the, the two older brothers, Juan and Cesare. Cesare was more serious. He wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to rule the papal troops. But um, the, their father gave that role to the other brother, Juan, And it's not really clear who was older, because different books will say different years. Most commonly believe that Cesare was older, but there are some people who say Juan was older, which would make sense considering he was kind of the favorite. And usually the older son was the one who would go into the military and the younger son would become a priest. So that would make sense. But Cesare was very resentful of Juan, and Juan was totally feckless, a total punk, really. You know, he was just one of those, I can't help thinking of like the Trump brothers. (laughs) Actually, I can't remember if it was before or after Trump was elected, but I immediately saw a parallel between the two families, the Trumps and the Borges, because it's really very similar. So you have this sort of patriarch, this man who is a womanizer and regularly has relationships with very younger women, has a lot of children with a lot of different women, always beautiful women, of course, and has at least three important children. Funnily, Alexander VI had many children, maybe seven or eight or nine children. I can't remember the exact number, but only three were really important to him, and that was Cesare Juan and Lucrezia. Just like Donald Trump, he has a lot of children, But really only those three, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka, are important to him. So two boys and a sister, two brothers and a sister. There's also been that rumor. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that anything has happened between Trump and Ivanka. But there is that sort of hint of it. 
there is that whisper of it. You know, you can see the way that, you know, in photographs, the things he said, it's very inappropriate. It could have been the same sort of thing in the Borgias. It could have been that they had that kind of relationship, kind of a touchy-feely, inappropriate relationship, but that never crossed the line. But people said that it did because it appeared so. Right. The Borgia Pope could have equally said, my daughter's so attracted that if I wasn't her father, I would have sex with her. Yeah, and he probably would have. Yeah. <laughs> he extrapolates from there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Lordy, I can't believe it. But yes. <laughs> so there's that. Then, of course, around the time that Alexander VI becomes Pope, he gets this new mistress, this new younger version. He puts sort of Venozza Catane aside, and he starts um, a relationship with a girl named Giulia Farnese, who bears him a daughter while he's Pope, Laura. Now, Baron Trump was not born while Trump was president, but there is kind of a parallel there, too. The younger wife with the younger child, much younger than the older ones. And of course, just the way that the Borgia children were so involved in their father's papacy just really mirrors the way that those three children are so involved in their father's presidency and the way he he lavishes titles on them that they are completely undeserving of. And particularly thinking of this son-in-law, Jared Kushner. There isn't necessarily a Jared Kushner character. I mean, yes, Lucrezia Borgia was married two times while her father was Pope and then she was married off a third time. Her father was still the Pope, but she moved away from Rome with her third husband. She moved up to Ferrara, which is probably the best thing she could have done for her life. And that was her only sort of lasting marriage. But, you know, she did have these politically important husbands in her early years that did serve purposes in the quote-unquote administration of the Pope. So you could kind of come up with a parallel, although it's not quite as convenient as the other ones. I thought about it, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to think about it, but I really felt like, oh my God, it's it's the same family. It's just a modern version. And also, here's the thing. Here's maybe the biggest thing. The Borgias did things that nobody else could get away with. I mean, they went beyond. Everything was to excess. Yes. Things that you just, you think to yourself, how in the world could a Pope get away with this? Like, they had orgies in the Vatican. I'm not going to describe it because I don't want to have to label this explicit, but look up, if you're interested, the Night of the Chestnuts, the name of the most famous orgy that occurred during Alexander VI's papacy. And the really great convenient thing for history is that his master of ceremonies, Johannes Bouchard, he kept a record of everything. He wrote about everything that was going on. And that's why we know so much. And I mean, he probably did elaborate a little bit and exaggerate a little bit. But I mean, I'm, I doubt that he invented the Night of the Chestnuts, the Banquet of the Chestnuts, it might have been called. So these things truly did happen. And to what extent, I don't know, but they were going on and it was crazy. The last thing I want to talk about, and then we'll, we'll start talking about where you can go in Rome if you want to you know, visit the sites of the Borgias, is the murders. So there were two beyond any other random murders that they might have committed against people, and they definitely did. I mean, Cesare Borgia had his own personal assassin who basically just followed him around and killed whoever he asked him to kill. There were two important murders very close to home. And the first one was the murder of Juan Borgia. That occurred in um, 1497. So the brother. The brother, yes. The, let's say the... The beloved. The more beloved to his father, but kind of hated and resented by his brother, Cesare 
So he disappears one night after the two brothers have been dining together at their mother's home. They kind of leave together, but split up, supposedly. This is Cesare's version of that. They split up and each went their own way. The next morning, they didn't hear from him. They assumed, okay, he's with a woman. He was a womanizer too. But after two days, they finally started looking for him and his body was found in the Tiber River. It had been stabbed nine times. This was devastating for the father, for the Pope. And there was this you know, massive funeral and yada, yada. But then, of course, they had to try to figure out who had done this. But the problem was there were too many possible people who had a motive. <laughs> Everybody hated this guy. I mean, they hated him more even than maybe they would have hated the rest of the Borgia family because he was such a jerk. He was sleeping with everybody's wives and abusing people and beating people up and taking people's wealth away and just doing all the bad kind of things that you could imagine someone who's evil and has a lot of power doing. They never find out who did it, but some people think, and again, this is kind of the gossip that makes the story so much more interesting. Some people think it was Cesare who did it. Yes. And one of the TV shows, because there have been two TV shows made about the Borgias, one called The Borgias and one called Borgia. <laughs> and I think in The Borgias, they have it that Cesare killed him. And in Borgia, they have it actually that Lucrezia killed him. Mm. So either way, fascinating. What they don't have is just some guy he ripped off in the streets kill him, basically. Well, we know that's not what happened because he, when he was found, he had his purse on him with 30 ducats inside. So if it had been a random killing for money or something, it, it's not possible they would have taken his money. It could have been revenge, though, against any number of different families who hated him, for sure. It could have been revenge. But it also could have been the family members, which I think is more fun. I choose to believe that Cesare killed him. More fun 500 years later. You know what? It makes me warm and fuzzy inside to think about that. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um... <laughs> Katie here, stepping into the show for a brief moment to say that if you're new to the program, don't be afraid to go back and listen from the beginning or just dabble through the shows of the past. Most of our topics are timeless. They are as fun today as they were years ago. So please subscribe to the show and then explore. Also, if you're all caught up and you'd love some new content, we are releasing brand new episodes on patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. This month, Tiffany reveals how she remembers so many ancient Roman facts off the top of her head. And I tell you the worst piece of advice I ever followed. All that and more for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. There are links in the show notes. And one final thing, August is Tiffany's birthday month, and I would love to get her the gift of more reliable internet. We have had all sorts of internet issues in the past year, and this show has been all the harder to make because of it. As you know, Tiffany is in Rome and I am in Seattle. We are always working remote with each other. Help me build up enough money to give her this gift. Heck, give us both this gift. Send a one-time birthday present donation through PayPal at thebittersweetlife.net and send your greetings and well wishes to Tiffany at the same time, thebittersweetlife.net. And now, back to the show. But the other murder, which is not a mystery, we know what happened, is the murder of Lucrezia's second husband, Alfonso of Aragon. So we know what happened to the first husband. He got annulled. He got humiliated and disappeared. Not disappeared as in the mobster way, but just he disappeared. (laughs) 
<laughs> he didn't get disappeared. He, he just stepped off stage exactly. and went and lived a normal common person's life. He yeah. went back up to Pizarro. Yeah. <laughs> so she marries again in 1498, I think. She marries this young, handsome guy from Naples who's the illegitimate son of the king of Naples. And he gets made a prince and a, a duke and all of such. Not a duke, a count. And apparently they loved each other. According to, you know, most historians, they loved each other. They were very happy together. But for some reason, someone in the family, Cesare, did not want him around anymore. So you can either think, okay, he really was having an incestuous relationship with his sister. And so he was jealous. Yes. Or he wanted to. Or he wanted to. So that's the way that the TV shows obviously take you because it's more thrilling. Mm -hmm. Probably... It was because he was no longer politically useful to the family. And maybe they didn't think that they could go through another annulment. No one was going to believe that she hadn't had sex with her second husband. They had a kid together. So (laughs) it was clear that they'd had sex. Or it could have been that he may have betrayed the family in some way that they felt was unforgivable. But basically, he was set upon in the middle of the night on the steps of St. Peter's of all places. And don't imagine the St. Peter's that we have today. You have to imagine the old version in your mind medieval St. Peter's, if you're sitting there imagining the story. How do we do that? Um, have you seen Santa Maria in Trastevere? I know you have, Katie. Yes. Picture that church, but bigger. Okay. okay. That's the medieval style of churches with the pointed roof and the large porch with the arches in front, not the big dome. Okay. So he was stabbed by a couple of men who were obviously assassins who then took off. And they thought he had died. They thought they'd basically left him for dead. Well, he was taken in. Somebody, I guess, heard, whatever, somebody in the Vatican. And they took him into the Vatican, and they took him into the Pope's own apartments. I don't believe that the Pope wanted him dead. I think it was Cesare who wanted him dead, because the Pope actually tried to protect him. And so they put him in part of the Borgia apartment, and we're going to talk about the Borgia apartments in a second, if we have time, called the, the Borgia Tower, which is a room in the Borgia apartment in the Vatican that is not accessible to tourists, unfortunately. But they put him in there, and of course his wife was called, and his sister as well, and they came, and they basically nursed him. They brought in doctors as well from Naples, okay? They weren't going to, like, take any chances. Lucrezia Borgia actually cooked for him. You have to imagine, back in those days, a woman of her station would never have cooked. There's no way... But she and her sister-in-law, basically, her her husband's sister, cooked everything for him themselves because they were afraid that he would be poisoned. Yeah, they didn't know who was trying to take him out. They presumably didn't know. I don't know. It might have been obvious to them. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Point is, he was getting better. About a month passed, and he was really on the mend, and he was was seen as probably was going to survive. And one night, Cesare shows up with his assassin friend he basically tells his sister he's like you have to get out of here you have to get out she really trusted him they were very very close whether or not they had an incestuous relationship we don't know but they were very very close and i guess she trusted him he basically kicked her out of the room and the sister as well and they strangled the poor kid Hmm. he was like 19 oh i know that's awful that's right right in the vatican that happened yeah do we have any idea of how that affected cesare and lucrezia's relationship going forward um i think it did damage their relationship for a while i've read a few biographies and i believe that it definitely was damaging but i I, they eventually reconciled there's documentation of them having long conversations and spending time together after but i think it took a while 
And I think she was probably pretty happy to marry the Duke of Ferrara and get out of Rome, have her family stop ruining her marriages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but yeah, so that's, that's not the whole story. Obviously, they eventually die. <laughs> um, some people think that the Pope was poisoned, that that's how he died. He was a very hardy person. Like he was old. He was, I mean, actually he wasn't that old by today's standards. He was probably in his late 60s, early 70s. I think he became Pope at 61. And I think he was Pope for 11 years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was like one of those strong, vigorous people. Yeah. He apparently suddenly got sick and his son, Cesare, got sick around the same time. Cesare survived. So a lot of people think he was poisoned. I think it's very possible that he was poisoned. And Cesare being so sick from the same poisoning was not able to hold on to any kind of power. I mean, like the idea... Oh, here's another parallel with the Trumps. The Pope wanted to turn the papacy into a hereditary kingdom, more or less. That's why he forced Cesare to become a cardinal. It was because he wanted him to eventually become Pope. Similarly to how Trump is like trying to groom one or two of his children to become president. He wants to create a dynasty. So that was the plan. That was the hope. But of course, it didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Cesare was no longer a a cardinal by that time. He quit. He gave it up. Yeah. But yeah, so so that's in a nutshell the story of the Borgias. Well, how does Cesare die? Do you know? Cesare dies, I want to say, not in battle, but definitely in a fight, like in a sword fight. Hmm. or a knife fight of some kind. And Lucrezia, does she just live out her days happily away from Rome? She lives a certain amount of time happily away, but she dies in childbirth at 39. And one of her children, you know, of her final husband, is the man who went on to have Villa d'Este built. Have you been to Villa d'Este? Yeah. Glorious Renaissance villa in Tivoli. Mm -hmm. So that was her son's villa. Wow. Ippolito d'Este. She married Ercole d'Este, the Duke of Ferrara, and then that was their son. Very cool. That villa has probably the most famous garden right outside of Rome. Yeah, it might be one of the most famous gardens in Europe, if not the world. It's so beautiful. Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Lugs, offering a full range of stylish footwear for the entire family. From boots to canvas options, Their shoes are comfortable and fun no matter what season it is. Lugs are affordable and versatile. And even if you're working from home, Katie, you still need shoes. You know I need shoes, Tiffany. I haven't bought shoes in a long, long time. So treat yourself. You can never have enough shoes. (laughs) Lugs is offering our listeners a discount of 30% off right now when they visit lugs.com. That's L-U-G-Z dot com. Yes, visit there and enter the promo code BITTERSWEET for 30% off all full-price items. That's BITTERSWEET for 30% off. Lugs is a great brand with shoes for the entire family. Stylish, realistically priced, and great for everyday wear. Lugs has a wide range of options, from canvas shoes to stylish boots. You should really check them out. You just might find the exact shoe you've been wishing for. Visit Lugs.com and enter the code BITTERSWEET. But anyway, if you become fascinated with the Borgias like I am, I think I've read like three or four books on them, <laughs> including like historical fiction, which is why I'm convinced that Cesare killed Juan, because I read it in a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Must be true. Yeah, you must be. So first, the most important place you have to go is the Borgia apartment in the Vatican. Now, 
the Borgia apartment is, if you go to the Vatican museums, and if you've been there, you know this, the very last place you go is the Sistine Chapel. But there's a certain point you get where you have like, choose your own adventure. Like you can go left or you can go straight. And if you go straight, you go straight to the Sistine Chapel. And if you go left, you go through a couple of rooms and you go to the Raphael rooms. The Raphael rooms are amazing. After you visit the Raphael rooms, you go downstairs. And this is why nobody wants to go there. And it's sad because there's some of the, some of the most amazing art in the Vatican, but it's such a long detour that if you've taken a long time in the earlier parts of the museums, you're exhausted by this point and you just want to get to the Sistine Chapel, which is why not that many people go there. So you might get lucky and you might have some time there to wander around without the huge crowds. So after you visit the Raphael rooms, you go downstairs and you're in the Borgia apartment. And there's a totally different feel down there. I don't know if you felt this when you went there. No, you didn't go there. Wait, have you been there? No, I did go there. You did go there. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. I felt like you didn't, you purposely didn't go to the Vatican, but I think it's the Colosseum that you purposely didn't go to. That's correct. Okay. I went to the Vatican at the best time of year to go. January? In mid-January. Perfect. Good girl. (laughs) When nobody's there. Well, some people are there, just not as many. Yes. So you go down there. I mean, first of all, you're in the the Raphael rooms and they're just so bright and the frescoes are so just, you know, rich and, and all of that. And you go downstairs and you go into this space that's just much darker. And I honestly feel that there's a sense of darkness in those rooms that's beyond just visual darkness. Mm -hmm. Because I just think so much evil happened in those rooms, the minimum being the murder of Alfonso of Aragon. So the rooms have recently been restored. I don't know if it was before or after you went, but they were restored and most of the paintings are really beautiful now and you can really appreciate them because they were very dirty before almost all the paintings in the Borgia apartment are by Pinturicchio an amazing early renaissance painter frescoist and you can find a couple of portraits there's a portrait of Rodrigo and there's a portrait of Lucrezia very beautiful young 14 year old Lucrezia she would have been that age when it was painted like I said the tower the Borgia Tower is not open, but you can still wander amongst the rooms. There's these gorgeous fireplaces with the name Valentino written on them. Valentino was one of Cesare's names because he became Duke Valentinois. So he went by the name Valentino after that point. You know, these little things, and you can see the family crest with the bull. And if you're a history nut and you like this stuff, it's very cool to be in those rooms and to see them. And And also, according to a very senior, now retired guard in the Vatican Museums, who's also an amateur historian, there was, there is still a chute inside the Borgia apartment where you could conveniently put a body and it would basically take it down underground and eventually make them into the sewers and out into the Tiber River. Wow. So. Boy, not a place to accept a dinner invitation. Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) I have not seen this, just to be completely honest, but I've, I've heard about it from more than one source. So hmm. it's probably, probably there somewhere. Now, Claudio, since he's a guard at the Vatican and has to spend certain days sitting in the Borgia apartments, has he ever mentioned anything about an eeriness to there? I have to ask him. I don't know. I don't know. But I definitely feel it every time I go down there. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of odd because it's... It's used as the modern religious art gallery as well. You'll be looking at these frescoes from the 1490s and all of a sudden there'll be this 
painting from 1970. <laughs> it's just, it's a little <laughs> bit odd. It's a little bit off-putting. Yeah. But definitely worth a visit, especially if you're interested in the Borges. Yes. A couple of other places that you don't want to miss. One is a place called Salita dei Borgia, which is basically just a staircase, but it leads up to the church of San Pietro in Vincoli. And the building, basically there's a little courtyard right in front of San Pietro in Vincoli. Right before you go up the stairs that lead to that courtyard, there's a building that has an arch underneath it. So again, this kind of dark, eerie feeling that kind of just followed that family everywhere. This building was the home of Vanessa Catanei. And there's a little balcony in the front, supposedly called the balcony of Vanessa Catanei, the mistress. So that is one place. You can't go inside, but I mean, you can see it from the outside. It's beautiful. It's covered in vines and it's a really lovely little angle of Rome. Where is it? What part of the city? It's in Monti. Okay. So if you look up the church of San Pietro in Vincoli, it's basically right there. There's this little staircase that leads up, I don't know, from Via Cavour probably. It's impossible not to recognize. We'll put some of these pictures on our social media. But it's definitely, it's definitely a beautiful spot, but it's also kind of a dark and dreary spot as well. Apparently this is the home where Cesare and Juan were dining with their mother the night that Juan was murdered. Oh. So next, you want to go to the Piazza Fiammetta. It's near the Piazza Navona. It's just outside the northern end of Piazza Navona. And in that square, you'll find a little, I mean little, it's not little, but compared to some of the palaces in Rome, it seems little. It's just a three-story white building that is kind of all by itself. It's not right next to another building that's butting up against it. So it's kind of easy to recognize and it's very Renaissance. You can tell that it hasn't, it's not one of the buildings that was, you know, restored in the Baroque period or the late 1800s. That was the house of a woman named Fiametta, I can't remember her last name, <laughs> Fiametta Michaelis, something like that. She was Cesare Borgia's longtime mistress. In front of her home now, there's a parking lot, but there's also like a parking strip between where you can park the cars, and that's full of pomegranate trees. Oh, is it? Yes. The first time I ever saw a pomegranate growing in real life in the was wild. in the parking lot in front of her house. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Now, can you visit her house? I doubt it. No, you can't go in it as far as I can tell. It almost looks like it's used for something, but it's never open. It's not a tourist attraction. Right. So I don't know why there's a parking lot there, but... Well, I guess people in the neighborhood need to park somewhere. Yeah. It made me imagine, though, that maybe... Somewhere along the line, there would have been just trees out in front, yeah. the remnants of a garden. It was definitely much more, I mean, it was always a city, but it was much more rural as a city. I mean, the thing about Trastevere was all fields, basically. Yeah, yeah, it was the country. Yeah. And lastly, the Palazzo della Cancelleria, which is this massive palace, it was originally called Palazzo Sforza Cesarini. Now it's known as Palazzo della Cancelleria. It's this massive palace near Campo dei Fiori. I should have looked up the address for you. I'll put it in the show notes. But basically, it's a street that leads sort of towards the main drag that runs through the center of Rome via Corso Vittorio Emanuele II. So it's, it's a street that leads from Campo dei Fiori up to that big street. And it's on the left side of the street, if you're walking up towards that street. And it's this ginormous, it's almost as big as Palazzo Farnese, 
and you can walk inside to the courtyard. It's almost always open, the courtyard at least. And it's beautiful because it has these beautiful arches going all the way around on two levels in the courtyard. And there are exhibits that go on in there. It's probably one of those places that if you really want to say, oh, I've been inside the Borgia Pope's private palace, you can probably find a way to get in there. They're not big exhibits, but there's always kind of something going on there. And I've been in there once to see the frescoed rooms that were frescoed later, not during Rodrigo Borges' time, but in the mid-1500s by Giorgio Vasari, of all people. Those are not open to the public generally, but probably the kind of thing, like, if you request somebody, you could probably get a visit somehow. But that's a beautiful, beautiful spot. And what about the Palazzo Farnese? Well, Palazzo Farnese, well, okay, so at the end of the relationship between the Pope and his young mistress, Giulia Farnese. I guess he was moving on to someone even younger. I don't know. She was only like in her early 20s. <laughs> she was too old at that point. <laughs> Once you're 20, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> she was very, very clever because when the Pope asked her, you know, what, what can I give you? Instead of saying, you know, I want this palace or this amount of cash or whatever, she said, make my brother a cardinal. And that is how... Alessandro Farnese became a cardinal and he eventually went on to become Pope Paul III. Mm. He was able to enrich his family immensely through being a cardinal. I mean, eventually, obviously, becoming a pope. But even just as a cardinal, I mean, once you're a cardinal, you kind of have it made because there's so many different ways that you can make money, just ridiculous amounts of money. And uh, it's kind of like those politicians who like go on to become lobbyists or like they get these consulting gigs where they work two hours a week and they, they, they make 500,000 euros dollars yeah, a year. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that you know, kind of thing. I know from booking so many live events, because that's part of what I do for a living. Some of those politicians get paid $100,000 to come and talk for an hour. Jeez, should have gone into politics. I know. Yeah, so I don't think they got paid for public speaking. A lot of people say, well, how did they have so much money? T- tourists have asked me, okay, how did the Pope have so much money? Or how did this Cardinal get so much money? But they would have had churches, not just churches, but abbeys and monasteries in the country that were under their control. And those abbeys and monasteries had land that made money. That was their money, basically. So that was just one of the ways. Selling indulgences. I mean, there were many ways. But so that palace, Palazzo Farnese, was was Alessandro Farnese's palace. And so whenever I look at that palace, I think, Giulia Farnese, like if it wasn't for her... The palace probably wouldn't have been built. I mean, they were not poor to begin with. They were a wealthy, upper-class family, but, you know, nothing like what they eventually became. Palazzo Farnese is the biggest, was the biggest, it's not private anymore, but it was the biggest and most luxurious private palace in the city of Rome, which is saying a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it also is one of those ones that stands on its own, yes. towering over its own piazza, which it's actually mm-hmm. one of the ones, too, where I think, tourists run into it pretty easily on accident because they go to Campo dei Fiore and they just have to turn a corner and there it is. It's just sitting right there. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of Campo dei Fiori, Vanozza Catane apparently had a hostel slash hotel slash tavern in Campo dei Fiori. If you're a student, if you're like a study abroad student and at night you're like wandering through Campo dei Fiori trying to pick which bar to go to, the mistress of the Pope, the first mistress of the Pope, the main one, she had her place there. Do you know which place it is or no? No, I don't think it's known. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that it's known where exactly it was on that square. So 
in your comparison with the Trumps who are now president and in charge of the United States and the Borgias 500 plus years earlier, does it give you more tolerance for the current state of affairs? Do you think that 500, 1,000 years from now, the Trump dynasty will be as fascinating as the Borgia dynasty? Or do you think hmm. the Borgias had some sort of something else going on that makes them more interesting? That's a really good question. And I, I don't know. I think the Trumps will be fascinating in history, unless history just keeps going that direction and then that becomes the norm, which is, of course, the big fear. But I have hope that that won't happen. So I think that they will be fascinating. I hope that it will be fascinating in this sort of like horror-filled fascination that the same that the barges are held in. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks of the Borgias as like, wow, they were amazing people. Everybody knows they were all bad people. With the exception of Lucrezia, actually, she got a bad rap, but I think that she was actually quite a devout person, and she was constantly going back to that convent just to like get away from her family. I think that she was a pawn, and not the poisoner that they tried to make her out to be. But... Yeah, I think that people will look back on them with, with a horrified fascination. Now, does that mean I have more, what did you, what was the word you used? Tolerance? Patience, Patience. sympathy, tolerance, interest even? Uh, no, I do not. Especially because it's my country, you know, it's my country, it's my present. So I unfortunately don't have the uh, perspective to, to step back and, and say, oh, well, in 500 years, they'll say, oh my gosh, I love the Trumps. They're my favorite. It's my, my favorite presidential family. The way I think of the Borgias, they're like my, fa- it's my, my favorite papal family or the Borgias. Uh-huh. But they're horrible, you know? <laughs> so maybe someone will think the same way yeah. about Trump, but I can't think that way, not right now. Not yet. Not while he's still affecting the course of history. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, that was a fun trip. Yeah. And last little tidbit, last little tidbit. I know we're running long here, but I just want to say, if you are a Godfather person. If you like the Godfather trilogies, and really, who doesn't? Think a little bit about that family, and then think again about the story of the Borgias that I just told you. It was actually written as a parallel. He was inspired by the Borgia family. I think he was the one who coined the term the original crime family. Basically, he said that the Borgias were the original you know, mobster family. <laughs> and it really is fascinating how it lines up particularly the relationship between Sonny and I can't remember the name of the sister at the moment, how he was incredibly protective of her. Her husband beat her and he was always trying to like, and he eventually kills her husband, which is a parallel of Cesare killing Lucrezia's second husband. And there's all these parallels in it. The two brothers, you know, the two brothers who have this rivalry between them trying to earn the favor of the father and It's basically the same story if you look at it closely. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting in these histories, the stories that we often glom onto do have these archetypes that have made their way into fairy tales, modern day movies, whatever, these same kind of traces, even people's lives. Who knows? Maybe the Trumps are just (laughs) inspired by the the Godfather, the Borgias, and are modeling their own lives. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? So fascinating. Well, perhaps one day next time I'm in Rome, we'll have to take everyone to the streets and go visit some of these places. All right. And until then, find us on social media so you can look at pictures of these places that Tiffany will post. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the Bittersweet Life Podcast or at Bittersweet Pod. And locations maybe in the show notes. Yes. 
Yes. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that trip through history, Tiffany. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, suggesting it. Well, and until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. It's true. This show doesn't survive without your donations. Your financial support makes this show possible. We have bills to pay and we need to make a living. And this show takes a long time to make. If you love the show and you want to support it and make sure it makes its way into 2019, please take a moment to visit thebittersweetlife.net on your desktop. Click the donate button and donate whatever feels right to you. You will receive a handwritten thank you note in return and even more than that, the swelling of our hearts loving you forever. That's thebittersweetlife.net on your desktop. Click the donate button and offer whatever it is that feels right to you. We really do appreciate your support. Additionally, if you're a person who would like to advertise to the Bittersweet Life audience, feel free to send us an email to get the conversation going. That's at bittersweetlife at mail.com. Bittersweetlife at M-A-I-L dot com. Thanks for all the ways you support us and have a great holiday. Bye. Thank you.